Hello, howdy, hey! Welcome to the first episode of season two of The RevOps Show. We have missed you all during our little break, but we are back and kicking off this season strong with an episode geared towards bad metrics and figuring out what metrics you should be paying attention to. There's a lot to unpack here as Doug and Jess talk about SaaS companies, public versus private companies, and the dangers to strictly following the trending metrics. So with that being said, let's get ready to RevOps. Jess! Jess! Doug! I'm stoked! I'm stoked! Wow. Wow, we're just coming out of the gate hot. I am. I mean, Jess, how could you not be more excited than than what is about to happen right now? It is a new year. It is. And a new season. It is a new season. Season two. Season two. Yes. Season one went about, I don't know, 30 months, 24 months, whatever. (laughs) Something like that. Yeah. I think what we do is I have a random number generator here. And I just run a a random number. And that's how many months each season. That's. That's not what we're doing. We took a we took a much needed break. <laughs> I have to admit it was a sad time for me. I know I know you were sad. I, I mean, know, I know I you're mean, always yes. sad when we yes. can't rev up show. Get through, how did you get through the holiday without a revox show? Without a new revox show? I barely <laughs> barely. So, I I have been avoiding asking you a question. For quite some time, actually. Oh, boy. Because this year is kind of a big year for you. It is. You know if what happened about on January 1st? Up... Oh, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> See? Went somewhere else, didn't I? <laughs> you did. We need to give you... some space to me for the next 10 months, is all I'm saying. We need to honor the next 10 months. <laughs> So you almost gave something away. I you did. Didn't, you didn't have to. I did. You, you know what happened January 1st, don't you? January 1st this year? This year? What? Steamboat Willie's in public domain. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. So a bunch of terrible, terrible Mickey Mouse horror movies are going to be made. And Tigger, too. And Tigger too. Mm-hmm. So, so the Winnie the Pooh horror is going to have a sequel because Tigger's going to get to join. It's just blasphemy, is all I'm going to say. People are awful. Jess, Jess, this is what it means, though. <laughs> we can start utilizing Steamboat Willie <laughs> in our work. <laughs> yeah, because that's just befitting. That that's total fit. <laughs> like, don't you think we should take the Rev Up Show logo and? work Steamboat Willie into that logo? I absolutely, I absolutely think we should. Let's get on that right now. So how do you feel about Steamboat being in the public domain? I mean, I... Have you talked about it on your Disney podcast yet? I have not. We have not talked about it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean... I see, I think you don't like it. I I wish that's where you Well, so I don't like when people do stupid shit, like creating a horror movie with it. Like, I, I just don't like, leave it alone. It's like that. That's, that's kind of sacred. 
So I, I'm not I'm not mad about it being in public domain. I don't like if people are going to make a mockery of it, and that's that's my that's why I'm bothered. Now, now if you think about this, if you think about this week, I foreshadowed this topic. Do you remember? Do you recall the foreshadowing? Doug, this week has been a hell of a month, and that's all I'm going to tell you. <laughs> so I often will find uh, a GIF. A gif, a yep. riff, whatever the damn thing's called, mm -hmm. to share as my way of saying good morning. Yes. Jess, I know you look forward to it every day. I do. I didn't get one this morning, but I do look I forward to it every day. I was a little tired this morning. <laughs> I figured. Do you remember the gif that I used on January 2nd? I'm looking for it right now. I do not. <laughs> ah, it is Steve Will Heath. There we go. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> See? See, I... I gave you plenty of warning to be prepared for this topic. You did. You did. Last last thought on this topic. Mm -hmm. um, you remember, do they still have, do they still call it Paradise Island? Are you talking about Pleasure Island at Pleasure Disney Island. World? Did, did I say Paradise Island? That's, yeah, that's you a completely did. different thing. Sorry. It is Pleasure. not, Wait, it's, it was, Wait, it was called it? Pleasure Island. Yeah. Pleasure Island. That's where, do they still, yeah. is it still called Pleasure Island? It's not called that anymore. It is now called Disney Springs. Right. Okay. So when it, it was called shopping, Pleasure Island. Yeah, where it was more nightclubs, which is not what yeah, it, was it was so bars. much is anymore. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. and so um, I went there because my sister lived in Orlando, moved from Orlando. She's back in Orlando, but back when I was in my twenties, um, went I was down for business, visited, and and we were in Pleasure Island, and I came up with what I thought would be the best selling T shirt in the history of Disney World. Oh boy, and. <laughs> And the thing is, today I could do it. Okay. And it was, it was going to be Mickey Mouse chugging a beer. There it is. Yep. Pleasure Island. That would have been a good T-shirt. That would have sold. You know? uh, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I agree. I mean, I think I think that would be a great shirt for Epcot. Like, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. saying. But are, are are the do they do characters in Epcot? Well, that's the where most of the, most of the characters are in Epcot. If you're looking for characters, that's where you go. Come listen to my other podcast. But isn't that weird? It is very weird. Well, so the reason is because it's more for adults. So what do you do with the kids? Like when we when we went, we went character hunting with kids because there's not as much for the kids to do in Epcot as there are, is in, say, Magic Kingdom. So it, I think it's to occupy the children. <laughs> Wait, I'm, I'm confused. Why wouldn't the kids drink around the world? It's a great question. And on mean, that note, <laughs> I mean, they would sleep that night. They would. They would they sleep would, great. They would sleep. I mean, you might be arrested the next day, but I digress. You, you can't be. It, it, it was Epcot. That's what you're supposed to do. We're in the Fair. Magic Kingdom. I know it's not officially the Magic Kingdom Park, but the kingdom is still magical. You're still the ma most magical place on earth. <laughs> All right, Jess. What are we talking about this week? In season, in episode one of season two, number, I don't even know what episode number yeah, we're on. I don't think either of us know what Do you think we're going to make it to 100 total episodes? I think so. I think we're pretty close oh, to 100. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm committed. You're committed. Okay. I'm committed. Well, as long as you're committed, Doug. Oh, you want to know um, where I am? You want to you know where I am on something? So, you know, I, 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 I walk a lot. I've been hitting my move. I hit my move goal every day. And so I finally needed a target. 
so I decided I wanted to break Cal Ripken Jr.'s streak. Cal Ripken played 2,632 days. I'm sorry, played mm-hmm. 2,632 games in a row. Yep. I am less than two weeks away from well, 2,632 consecutive days every day. Of hitting your, your step, your move goal. Yeah. There you go. I mean, granted, I set my move goal at 50 calories. <laughs> I did not, everybody. Okay, Arnie, what Doug. are we talking about? What are we talking about? Today, we're talking about dangerous metrics. Yep. <laughs> yep. So I was talking with one of our clients. Yes. Yester before. Yester before. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a combination <laughs> of yesterday and the day before. I can't remember which one of those days. Okay. Um, and he was talking about, I mean, this is, this is a very large, very complicated, multiple company business lines within there. And he, you know, he was talking about the concern of, you know, if, if, if we make it work for everybody, does it work for anybody? And, and there's a difference between that being anarchy, like everybody has it their way, as opposed to like this business unit has, has this process, that business unit has that process. And I was yep. explaining to them how, how we manage that. Cause, cause his, his statement was, look, will, will I be able to get, well, I think he said, well, I have an accurate pipeline report mm-hmm. to which I replied, you'll have an aligned pipeline report. <laughs> and, and, and the point there is it's never accurate. Like that's one of the things right. I have to understand about your dad is it's never accurate. It is. It, and, and I, but what I brought up to him is, was that reporting serves two functions. It's like, what do you mean? And I said, and when I say reporting, reporting and analytics, there's two, there's, there's two jobs and they are, they are separate. They are distinct and far more than not, they are conflicting. Yep. One job is to provide insights mm-hmm. and the ability to identify areas of improvement. Yep. The other job, and it is a distinctly different job is to tell a story. Yep. Right. And so it's like, will we be able to report to the board? Will we be able to report to our private equity will we be able to right and it's like okay, right right so those two jobs what will i be able to report to my board is a different job than will i be getting the insights that i need so that we can be continuously improving yeah um and and so it is very important that you understand when you're looking at metrics and you're designing what your what your metrics are what your dashboards are etc that you understand what the job of those reports are. And the, and the reason I bring this up is while, while this show is geared for far more than people in SaaS, whether you're in SaaS or out of SaaS, the SaaS industry sucks up so much oxygen these days yep. that, that they have become kind of a benchmark for the metrics that they have. And, and the ones that really lead the way are public companies. Right, because because you right. don't you don't see what the private companies are doing or saying or how, um, and and so if if you take a look at the history of SaaS, you'll see as as they've gone through phases of what we refer to as the growth life life cycle, you'll see that the they they keep introducing this new metric mm-hmm. that becomes the metric that everybody follows until the next metric, and and when you actually look at those metrics, what you're going to learn is. Yeah, those were the those were the story metrics, and and if you look at where I think SaaS is finding itself, yesterday I shared on LinkedIn 
I, I coined a new term. At least I think it's new. <laughs> had you heard of it? Have you heard the term before? Sassflation? No, I had never heard the term before. That was new to so, me. Sassflation. Um, can we get that? Uh, can we get that filed with a copyright? I'm, I'm going to charge people. It. I'm going to charge <laughs> two cents every time someone uses it. Um, and and look, here's the thing you have to understand about SaaS, and, and, and the thing you have to understand when you're looking at high-growth companies, super high-growth companies, there's a Ponzi element to what they're doing. There, there is an underlying when, – when, when you're playing high, high-growth and you're playing to valuation – you're, you're selling at artificially low prices. And one of the things that's happening, it's not the focus of the episode today, but mm-hmm. it is something that I think people need to be prepared for, is the underlying models of SaaS companies were, were flawed from a profitability standpoint. They, they, they were built for high growth because growth is what drove valuation. Growth is what drove the story that they needed to tell the analysts and the analysts would tell the investors and the investors would buy the stock and continue to own the stock. Right. And, and yep. what, what happened is we those metrics became the Bible of how are we doing? And it's causing lots of problems. What kind of problems is it causing? Lots of them. <laughs> lots of them. Lots and lots. Um, <laughs> what kind of problems is it causing? Uh, well, how tired are people today? I mean, I'm exhausted. <laughs> no, people are people are tired. I mean. You 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 deal with 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 our vendors. You see it. You yeah. You you see our customers, right? Yeah. Why, like, why is this company doing so well? What? Why are the tech bros all out there telling the story of tech freedom, and then and then saying the problem with the U.S. is in China? They're happy to work two hundred hours a week. Yeah. Is it possible yeah. to work 200 hours a week? I don't know that it is. I but I think someone has said that. I mean, Elon Musk has literally said that, that Elon Musk, um, I'm pretty sure Bill Ackman, Ray Dalio have all said, well, the advantage that the Chinese has is no one, no one there is complaintaning about a 10 or 12 hour workday. Like, well, well, wait a second. If this is supposed to bring all this freedom, you know, if you take a look at Uber, Uber was, mm-hmm. was a complete sabotaging the, the, the provider to provide an yep. artificially low to justify because the way they're getting monetized, the way they make their money, it's like owning a sports team, right? You don't, you don't own a sports team because you're looking to make annual profits. You buy a sports team because whatever you buy it for, you are highly, highly likely to sell it for a whole lot more. Yeah. Right. And, and, and the difficulty there is when you take a look at that equity game, what you find is high Pareto, distribution curves so they're benefiting a small small portion of the people that are that are creating that and and by the way if you take a look at the washout rates of what happens in venture funded companies and so forth this same thing is happening right and so i'm a vp of sales i'm looking at this we're using these metrics like one of the challenges is i start believing that we start talking about net revenue retention that's the one i'm going to really hit on today yeah we talk about net revenue retention and we start believing net revenue retention and we don't understand what is net revenue retention telling us and what is it not telling us, right? And so we fall into this pattern of look at, oh, look at my net revenue retention. And, and because, you know, we, we end up confusing 
the the map with the model, right? I'm sorry, the the map with the territory. We confuse the model with reality. You follow me? Well, what do you, so what do you mean by we confuse the model with reality? So we can tell me more about that. So a ma- the map is not the mm-hmm. territory. Right. Like, I, oh, I looked out on a map. I know, I, I know everything about this. I, I could walk the city blindfolded because I've really studied this map. Right. Right. No, no you yeah. can't. You, no, I've studied the topography. Like, there's always something there that's not actually represented. Right. It, it is a model. It is a simplified construct. Okay. Right. And, and, and so we get mad at weather forecasters because the weather forecasters. Though technically, right. it's actually impossible for a weather forecast to be wrong. Because it's a forecast? No. Because... Has there ever been a 0%, like truly a 0% chance of rain or a 100% oh, chance of rain? Right, right. right? There's yeah. a 10% chance of rain today. It rains. Oh, the weather forecast is wrong. No, technically it was not wrong. They said there was a 10% chance. <laughs> um, okay, so, so we, get, we go, because what, what's happening is we're looking at the model and we're saying the model is the reality. Now, the yeah. model by definition is a simplified element. It's being brought down into algorithms when, when, when the system is a complex ecosystem with things in a constant state of flux and so forth, right? And then we begin to believe that and, and we start making decisions based on that. And then we get, you know, Jim Collins, the one, probably the greatest, I don't, I can't say he discovered it, but his research pointed it out. And, and it's the takeaway from all of Collins' stuff that I actually find the most value in, which is, the first sign of failure and the number one cause of failure is success. Now, on one hand, it's kind of trite because if you don't have success, can you really call it failure? But the point is when you become, when, when, when you hit that point of success, two things, two things happen. By the way, this also hits the innovator's dilemma. Number one is you now have something to defend. You have yeah. something to lose. So you start defending. Right. Right. And, and this goes to our you know, multitude of conversations where we talk about data that stimulates thinking is good. Data that replaces thinking is not good. So we start looking at data with an objective to defend. Right. And especially, especially when you're at that point of success, it's actually pretty easy to find the data that supports what you're doing is the right thing. And so you become increasingly certain in what you're doing, blinding yourself to what is changing. And, and because you confuse the model with reality, go back many years ago, long-term capital group. This was basically the 2008 banking crisis before the 2008 banking crisis. This, this hedge fund that was started by like six Nobel laureates that had you know, the most advanced statistical models backward test it to withstand up to a six standard deviation event, right? So again, high levels of certainty. So they went in, did something like leveraged in an area that typically doesn't have a huge impact on things, right? A six standard deviation event is a very, very rare event. Leveraged up, but what they forgot is Six standard, de- six standard deviation events do happen, mm-hmm. and it happened. Yeah. And it almost brought down the entire financial system, right? Those are happening in microcosms all the time. Take a look at the performance of underlying SaaS companies. 
By the way, yeah. if you're going to jump into a, a into a SaaS product, and I would say if you're jumping into any product where you're going to be working with that company, you, you expect to be working with that company for a sustained period of time. It, it, it's important that you understand their business model, not not because you need to analyze their business model, but if I'm going to work with you for a long period of time, and so I'm going to build like I'm going to I'm going to use you as my CRM. You're going to become my central nervous system. I'm building everything on you. And I haven't realized, okay, how are you making money? How does this work? What's going to happen? Well, once I'm now fully on and I got everything in there, I lose all my leverage. Yeah. Right? You start raising prices. I can't do anything about it. I can get right. mad. Right? And, and, and by the way, we're seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what's so, happening, what's happening when, you, when your model's bad mm -hmm. is you go from value exploration and even value exploitation mm -hmm. to value extraction. So value exploration is something new comes out. We solve, a, we solve a new problem. We solve an old problem a new way. Hey, wow, right. have you seen this? This is freaking awesome. Holy cow. Lots and lots and lots of love. Now, the difficulty with, with, with value exploration is it's really bumpy, right? Right. Every, it, it's new. That's why you're getting your early adopters. Um, that's the disruptive element. So mm -hmm. to be disruptive, you have to be value explorative. You are creating new levels of value. And, and so people are willing to accept the disruption. Because by the way, when I take a new solution that, you know, that solves something in a new way or whatever, it is going to disrupt what I'm doing. There is a cost to that. But, but it's worth it because this is giving me an advantage. Now I want to count on it. And that's when we go into value exploitation, right? We've generated something new and, and it's now far more of a repeat. Right. Yeah. Right. That lets a much larger market come onto it because, hey, we can count on it. It works, it works, sure. it works, it works. The challenge is if you're not truly doing value exploration, mm -hmm. right? which is very customer centric and it's easy to fool yourself into customer centricity. And by the way, one of the great ways to do that is with these metrics, mm -hmm. you move into value extraction and you, and here's a really good way to begin to tell when someone's, when a company's moved to value extraction, by the way, value extraction is, is not win-win. So right? why do you say it's not win-win? Because there is no value that's actually being created. What I'm doing is I'm extracting. Okay. So value gotcha. exploration is I'm actually creating more I'm value creating than, value I'm, than I'm, I'm gaining. Because I'm learning and I'm improving because I'm right. But, okay. but also I'm giving you something brand new. I'm what I'm sure. charging for it. There's a whole bunch of things that come into that. Right. Value exploitation is where we get into that. Okay. There's an equity. There's a balance. Right. 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 Value extraction is like Spirit Airlines does value extraction. They sell you an airline ticket. <laughs> right? And they go, oh, you want a seat? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, someone comes out, usage fees. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm going to call it. I'm going to call it out. Hub, HubSpot, raising sales hub from $120 to $150. That was value extraction. What, what did you bring... Mm -hmm. why did they raise it? They raised it for two reasons. They had to. Well, well yep. why'd they have to? Well, goes back to the model. Right. And the second reason is because they could. Because they could, yep. By the way, why did they not raise it $50? Mm-hmm. 
$50 probably begins to hurt a little bit too much in terms of, right? Our, right? So, so the way you know, is that, so that's why I call it value extraction. Because, mm-hmm. and here's how you know that a company is moving to value extraction. And that is, you hear the word monetize. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you could put bugs into a company and just have a, a system count how many times the word monetize is brought up, the growth rate of the word monetize, I, my hypothesis is the growth rate of the word monetize being used would correlate almost directly with the move to value extraction. Yep. And, and it's the data that puts us in the position. It's the metrics that are putting companies in the position to make that happen. So you talked about net revenue retention as one of the metrics that, that SAS likes, pays attention to, plays with, however you want to phrase it. What, what are some of the other metrics that, that you well, see them using frequently? Let, 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 let's talk about how we got to net revenue retention. Okay. Because if, if we go back a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, 1998, 1999, the internet bubble, mm-hmm. of which SaaS is just a continuation. Um, Pets.com. Do you have customers? No, you don't have any. No, no, no. We don't have customers. We have eyeballs. Right. Right. We have people visiting our website. We are going to monetize eyeballs. Yep. By the way, I know that sounds stupid. (laughs) Unicorns went public because they were going to monetize eyeballs. Then it became customer growth. How many customers do you have? Yep. Because remember, this whole thing of free became a thing. Right, I remember. Well, yeah. How do you how do you make money if it's free? We're bringing customers, and so the number that told you how was the company doing was customer growth. Right, right. But you know what the name of our company is, Jess? It's Lyft. It is. <laughs> so we forget that there's this thing called science in <laughs> science, and so. There's a science to growth. Yeah. yeah. If we want growth, we need momentum. We need velocity. And we need yep. traje- tra- trajectory. Basically speaking, do you know what that's called? It's called lift. And what is Bernoulli's principle of lift? Bernoulli's principle is when the rate of wind above the wing is greater than the rate below, you create a vacuum that pulls up. Right. So what happened was we have customer growth. Mm -hmm. Customer growth starts to slow down. So what happens? Oh, take a look at our revenue. Right. And it became revenue growth. Yep, got it. Well, no shit your revenue growth is growing. But here's what I can tell you. If your revenue growth is growing faster than your customer growth, probably not sustainable. Yeah. When your customer growth is growing faster than your revenue growth, you're creating lift because you need the customer before you have revenue. Sure. So it's like, so five years later, customer growth starts slowing down. We need a story to tell. So we start talking about revenue. And by the way, you were asking, you know, you're asking for revenue. Here's our revenue. Okay. Revenue growth. What came next? Churn. Churn. When's the last time I don't hear people talk about churn? I mean, yes, they use the word churn, but they don't talk about churn like they talk no, about churn. No, churn rates was like huge like five years ago. <laughs> it was massive. It was churn, 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 churn. Yeah. 
what's the what's the lifetime of your average customer of your average customer lifetime yeah. of your average customer that was the question today yep. the question is lifetime value yeah right yeah. you go what's so what what's the difference lifetime of the customer is an inversion of churn right all right how long do i have the customer yeah right the customer well guess what happened so so by the way if you have a 33 percent churn rate uh-huh which is if you're in a recurring revenue business like your debt mathematically speaking what's your churn rate for the first three years a hundred percent no I, zero. Zero? Oh, for the first three. Okay, gotcha. Now, okay, yes, zero. Yes. Or maybe it's the first two years, but you get my point. Yeah, I gotcha, right? yeah. My average lifetime is three years. Right. Right, so the, for the first two or three years, my churn rate is really low because if my churn rate's 33% in the first year, I got a problem. Like, yeah. that, that's not going to average three years. Right. When you actually bring sure. in a compounding element, et cetera. Right. So, so for your, and, and, and so when your churn rate begins to, int, be, begins to, so let, let's just say average customer of five years, which again is a 20% churn rate, which anyone in a subscription business would tell you is bad. For the first five years, as you're ramping up your sales, you've got lots of sales coming in the front door and, and, a, and a trickle in the back door. So all of a sudden, so now I have a thousand customers. I'm bringing in 200 customers a year. I have a thousand customers now, right? And, and, and so now in year five, I'm oversimplifying this. Now in year five, I sell 200 customers, but 200 customers leave. I'm at 0%. I have zero right. customer growth. Yep. Right. So we went from revenue growth to the next one was customer retention. Look at our retention rate. Look at our, but then customer retention rate kind of wasn't telling the story. Right. But look at what our customers are paying. We're generating, and this is where, this is my favorite term in it. Negative, we have negative churn rates. That's what we started here. Negative churn rates. There's no such thing right. as negative churn rates. And, and <laughs> thankfully, they changed it to net revenue retention, which is how much revenue mm -hmm. are my customers producing greater than where they started. So year right. over year from your existing customer base. And by the way, so if I... As I'm, as I'm moving through the maturity scale, right? I'm moving to larger customers. If I'm not getting larger customers, if I'm not getting larger, larger deals, that's going to represent a problem. So I lose some customers, but those three customers that I lost are less than the new customer that I added. Plus, by the way, if I am serving somebody, they're going to use us more. Right. Like, I got news for you. If if your if your customers aren't paying more to you over time, that's a problem. It's not that congratulations, yeah. you're doing great. It's that's a problem. Right? Yep. And, and so of course you're going to have that. And now you take a look at company. If you take a look at the financial reports of SaaS companies over the last year, it tells a fascinating story they're, they're maintaining their growth rate. I'm sorry. They're, they're, they're maintaining their stock price because okay. they're still yep. getting enough growth. They're still showing enough growth. But here's what you need to understand if you have a subscription business. ABC company is a billion-dollar SaaS company. 70 to 80% of their 2024 performance is locked in. Mm -hmm. Right? There's not a lot they can do to change their 2024 performance. Because remember, 
in October, when they land a new piece of business, that only counts for three months. It only generates three months of revenue because they have to accrue the revenue. So, so we were seeing that, look at these companies, they're meeting their revenue expectations. They're meeting their, they're meeting their earning expectations. Yeah. Cause that, what, what happened was you look at the customer growth that happened post pandemic, the whole thing that drove all that up. Yep. That brought us a wave that we're now just getting through. Yep. And you take a look at, and I don't want to call any companies out, but if you take a look at companies, companies that have never not grown quarter over quarter are, are predicting zero growth in revenue. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, that is a problem. And so what do they need to do? What they're doing, they need to continue to promise that growth. And, and by the way, right. growth comes in two places. It's either the revenue growth that's going to drive the future value, or they're going to talk sure. about margins, operating margins. And you see all this focus now, because by the way, you can't grow like you used to. Do you know who one of the best growth SaaS companies in history has been? Salesforce. What is yeah. Salesforce's primary growth strategy? And this is not to say that, that their core business has not had organic growth because it absolutely has. But I would tell you that Salesforce, for all the things that it, that it does, I think when you look at it historically, what you're going to say about Salesforce is they were one of the best acquirer of businesses in history. Yeah. I, I yeah. will say that about Microsoft too. Microsoft is probably the best sure. acquirer of businesses in history. That's where their growth came from. Yeah. And so Adobe buys Figma. And by the way, the upside of buying Figma is Figma is a small company. There are a whole bunch of people complaining because in, in the government's rejection of that, that ended up breaking up the deal. It was, I think, the first time or a rare time where the evidence wasn't it's anti-competitive now like they're competitive now, it was that it could be anti-competitive. And everyone right. was complaining about that. All right. Except that when you look at the underlying scheme here, Figma brings that earlier stage growth. Figma's in the scale stage. Figma's yeah. moving from value exploitation into, I'm sorry, from value exploration into value exploitation. It right. brings a new level of growth that, that, that gives Adobe a pump of growth without actually doing anything. Right. Right. Which, which by the way, now takes Figma out of the game in terms of disrupting what Adobe might do, et cetera. Guess what tech and SaaS companies welcome to adulthood. <laughs> right. Right. Manufacturers have had to deal with this for 50 years. Right. Railroad companies have had to deal with this for 120 years. Right. Everyone loves yep. capitalism, except when they hold it against me. <laughs> right. Right. And, and so now suddenly acquisition isn't, isn't the easy play. Yeah. Right. And, and so, so you bring that underlying element into it and, and all of a sudden now what's the truth now, now this plays down in a micro fashion, right? Hey, we're looking at our growth rate, our customer growth rate. Look at this, look at our revenue growth rate, right? Every. And, and what we're not doing is identifying where is the vulnerability? What do we have to do? How, like when we're in that growth element, mm -hmm. and, and by the way, this show is geared to private companies. 
Right. Right. They, we're, we're not in the public markets. It might be private equity owned, but we're still in the private markets where I still like to think that profits matter. Um, what, what we need to be thinking about is, okay, where's the vulnerability that, that could hurt us? So we've got growth. We've got profitability right now. Well, how do we start solving the problems that we're going to have 18 months from now? What, what happens with, with kind of this flip way, and, and you can see it in, in, in pricing schemas, in positioning and everything, is you know, when you become public, you do live on a quarter-by-quarter basis. Sure. That's the game. Yep. And, and so you end up being in the wimpy place. And, and by the way, because your stock is, is, you know, it used to be pure stock options. It's not as bad if right. you're giving restricted stock. But because you're you're basically paying a game where you you win a lot or nothing, right? And so it doesn't pay to be moderately successful, right? Because there's not that much difference between reasonable success and nothing. So it's and so you get into the wimpy strategy. I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today, right? <laughs> I'll gladly pay the price two quarters from now for the stock performance today. And you can right. see, by, by the way, if you take a look at, at the predictions in, in a lot of these SaaS companies and, and, and high value, high multiple companies, there are cliffs that they're promising in the last half of 2024. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. And this is why you cannot confuse the stock market with your life or the world. If they don't hit their numbers in the second half of 2024... It's going to be, be because of what's happened over the last 12, 18 months. Right. Not because of what is happening then. Right. And that's where we get ourselves into a lot of problems. So we talked about the, the issues, the dangerous metrics and what the problems are. What's the, what's the solution? What's the solve? Jess, do you know what the difference between a mathematician, a computer scientist, and a data scientist is? I don't. <laughs> So if you ask them all, what is two plus two? The mathematician will go to a classroom, one of those giant freshman classrooms with uh, six different boards and will have this complex formula that in the bottom right corner, you'll be equals four. The computer scientist will get on a supercomputer, create a generative AI algorithm, Massive amounts of code to produce a report that is 7,000 pages long that at the end says equals four. Yep. The data scientist will say, here, follow me. And they'll take you through a snaking hallway. You'll lose track of turns. They'll go through four doors. They'll take you into a skiff, soundproof. They'll, they'll check for bugs. They'll lean over and they'll say... What would you like it to equal? I hope we don't have any data scientists listening to this episode. <laughs> in, in truth, all I did was I modified what's the difference between a mathematician, a computer scientist, and an accountant. Though I'm aware. The, the reality is, you know, what does the data tell us? Yeah. What, what do we want it to tell us? Right? It's, it's lies, damn lies, and metrics. That, yeah. That's weird. So, so, so you got to understand the data. Understand the data. First off, understand the job of the data. Because by the way, if you want to improve your business, that is not the data you want to share with your board. Well, and so on that note, and I think, and as somebody who, who deals with databases, who, who 
talks to clients about moving their systems over. Like this is the part that really gets missed. The the understanding of what what's the data for? Like not even like we always get the qu- question, can you report on it? Yeah, I can report on anything you want me to report on is usually my answer. But like, what are we really using this for? Like, what's what's the goal? Well, and it's and it's worse than that because I could add an element of what would you like the report to tell you? Well, that yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Like, do you want me to have the report tell you that everything's good? Yep. Right. Remember, we're talking to the company like we don't understand because our our MQL model and this is why MQLs have bad name. I don't understand why. And I don't understand how MQLs became this controversial term. <laughs> well, we generated 500 MQLs. We don't understand why they, why we're not generating revenue. Yeah. Well, OK, what what's an MQL? So. Right. You know, look, I don't think that I, I am in no way saying that you should provide report, reporting that lies to your board. But when you're reporting to your board, you're telling a story, you're providing support. And, and that's an important element. There's nothing wrong with that. It's an important element. At the same time, you've got to be looking at where's my, where's my, you know, what's my flank like? What is it not telling me? Yeah. Like when, when I was a bench coach, when I was a bench coach at college, when I was coaching college baseball, my job was if we were winning, my job was to figure out everything that would happen that could happen that would cause us to be losing and right. what would what should we do so that if suddenly the other team had a huge rally our manager who was also coaching third base wouldn't have to start thinking about it like we'd already have a pitcher warming up like all those things are going on and by the way when we were losing what would have to happen it's like my job was to always think about what would happen to put us in the opposite of where we were sure and, and it's why we won more games for the talent than, than we had any business um, winning. So understanding the model so that you understand how this fits. Look, I am not saying net revenue retention is not a good metric. It is a metric that I want to know. It, it is an important metric. But it is a metric that hides a whole lot. Right? It's also like when you're I mean, the thing that I hate about public companies, we added 20,000 customers. Okay, 18,975 of them were on your free product. They signed up for a free product. Okay. Yeah. Well, well let's, not, let's not include that in the... <laughs> am I saying that that doesn't matter? No. I, I don't know. I get it. It, it. it can be helpful. Right. Right. But like, if I were an analyst and I wanted to cover, like, tell me, tell me how this segment is doing. Tell me how this segment is doing and tell me how this segment is doing. Yep. And you know why they don't get that information? Why? Because the SEC doesn't require companies to provide that (laughs) level of detail. So the company won't give them that information. Right. Sure. And by the way, do you know why the company won't give them that information? Because they don't have to. Because it doesn't help them with what they're doing when... Right. Yeah. So do I want to know reality or do I want to hear the story? Right. Um, so you, you, what you have to do is you have to understand where's the weakness. Stop building static models. Right. So we get a poll, you know, um, Hillary Clinton, 67% chance that she mm-hmm. wins the election. Yep. New York Times had it at like 98%. Why did they have that? They had it because this was based on hundreds of polls 
And by the way, we weren't doing national polls. We were doing state polls. So we had 50 different yep. groups of polling that told us this, right? Here's the problem. There's nothing dynamic about that model. Because one state is going to correlate to another state. It's like, if Georgia isn't telling you the truth, that doesn't mean that North Carolina is. <laughs> right? If Georgia, right. like, if, if, if you don't, if you're not sampling right in Georgia, you're probably not sampling right in North sure. Carolina. Sure, sure. Right? So, so what you're looking at, and by the way, you know what, you know what most data scientists do with outlier polls? What? Throw them out? They take them out of the model. Yeah. <laughs> Throw them out. Yep. Now, should should you take this poll that's just a complete outlier? By the way, if the polling is any good, you'll have an outlier. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. of all the biases that happen. So what sure. we end up having is these underlying elements that all correlate. That, and, and the interesting thing here, and this is what happens when you have Pareto distributions. The cause creates the effect the effect becomes the cause. So what you end up having is this really bad loop. And when it comes time to pay the price, you pay the price in a big way, right? What we've got to do is build non-correlating analysis. Like I want to be looking at things that are looking at my business in different ways. I want the, like, you know, we, we had somebody that we know well who shared what their target was, they, they wanted to significantly increase their, their website visits mm -hmm. and significantly decrease their bounce rate. Yep. And I'm like, okay, I don't think you can do both of those at the same time. <laughs> right. That's a challenge. Yeah. But, yeah. but you know what? I like what they were thinking because, and the question I asked is, which is more important? Well, more traffic is important. Okay. Right. Let's grow traffic looking to, certainly not get any worse on bounce rate and let's moderately improve our bounce rate. Then right. once we get to a critical mass of tra traffic, then let's focus on, right. But like, those are two non-correlating elements, right? That's, that's part of what I mean by, um, by dynamic model. Remember, and we have, we have a video on this. We'll put a link into it. It's the science of, of, of growth. I think it's got more to it than that, but we talk about this. I, I call it the growth waterfall. There's three acquisition processes. There's engagement acquisition. Mm -hmm. There's customer acquisition. And there's revenue acquisition. No one buys from you if they don't know who you are, if they're not engaging with you. I want my audience, I want my community to be growing. And by the way, I want my community, I want my audience, I want my engagement to be growing at a much faster rate. And by the way, when my audience and engagement rate goes down, and it will at some point, you can only be a hockey stick for so long and you can only right. be in the, right. Then I need to change my strategy and tactics. I need to right. customer acquisition. If my engagement rate is growing at a higher rate than my customer acquisition is growing, then I'm building more people. What I'm doing is I'm going to make growth easier for me in the future than it is today. By the way, you know what we call that when growing tomorrow is easier than today? Do you know what we call that? That's what scale is. Okay. Right? Yeah. Scale is growing at lower costs, not just growth. Yeah. Right. Customer acquisition drives revenue acquisition. It is a waterfall. When one slows down, 
Now, look, when my customer acquisition starts to slow down and my revenue acquisition is growing greater than my customer acquisition, especially if we're dealing with large numbers, that is not a crisis. For a fair amount of time, I'm going to be able to drive more revenue, even though my customer rate has gone down, because I've got all these assets that I can begin to mine, right? And I'm going to grow... But if I'm not aware that my customer, like, okay, yeah, we're growing our revenue, we're growing our revenue, we're growing our revenue, but our our customer acquisition, right, There's that can only happen for so long. So now my weakness becomes like, so while I'm doing that, I want to solve my 18-month problem. I need to be focusing on my underlying customer acquisition, right? I So again, what am I going to report to Wall Street? I'm going to talk about net revenue retention. What I'm going to be talking about internally in our team and our and our um, internal initiatives, I'm talking about. Hey guys, we're beginning to see some softness, right? Right, and then and then you get into revenue acquisition. So there's three metrics that I love to use. What are those? The one which I have to attribute to strategic coach. Yep. It's called it's called the largest check, spelled C H E Q U E. Strategic coach is a Canadian company. So if it the largest check is not the largest check, C-H-E-C-K, just so we're clear, <laughs> revenue per customer and revenue per employee. And why do right. you like those metrics? So so here's what large, well, the first thing you should probably ask me is what is largest check? Because no one that has what is large, strategic coaching. What is just, sorry, I just no problem. rushed over I'm that. paying attention. I'm paying attention. <laughs> um, so largest check in, in the strategic coach language is largest check because strategic coach is geared more to individual practitioners, financial advisors. I mean, they work with a lot of companies, et cetera, but it's the average of your five largest customers. So, so to me, this is why I mean, we look at um, quintile analysis. Mm-hmm. So you, the top 20% of your customers, the next 20%, the next 20%, the next one yep. we just shared with somebody that has, more than 10,000 customers. And we were able to show them that if 40% of their customers stopped buying from them tomorrow, they wouldn't notice. Right. Right. Hey, wow, that tells me something. Yeah. What was interesting is the the middle third, the 20%, they wouldn't notice it that much either. Right. But if you look at it as a total amount of business, it represented a, a meaningful amount of business. Right. The problem was they weren't managing it differently. So, right. hey, here's yeah. a here's a $30 million tranche of my $2 billion. But we could grow that $30 million to $100 million at lower cost if we treated it differently, right? And so what Largest Check is doing is, it's like if you're a, if you're a larger company, I would probably call it the, the top, somewhere between the top 2 and 5%. Yeah. And by the way, you would be surprised. I have seen companies where the top 2% of their company generates 40% or more of their business. Sure. Yeah. Is that a bad thing? Not necessarily. But but here is what I want to see. I want to see my upper level. Right? And, and right. so sometimes you have to car- there are places where I've actually carved it out because their top 10 customers are just huge and and that's not their place, that's not their sweet spot. So we kind right. of find where's the top of their sweet spot? And we want to say, we want to see that number grow at a faster rate than their average does. Because what that tells me is I'm going into higher echelons. Yeah. I'm breaking into the next level 
Because what we know about pricing is over time, what we get for what we do, we get less and less. Yep. So, so largest tech says, are we growing at the top end of our business? By the way, that's important because that's what forces you to generate new capabilities. That's what helps to prevent value extraction. Yep. What happens is we kind of get into this market, growth becomes easy almost. Like it becomes super predictable and it's, and we're exploiting it, right? By the way, the, the, the term exploration, exploitation, and extraction comes from Roger Martin's work, um, Design of Business, et cetera. So if you want to get more on that, you can read that book. Um, what Again, remember, ex, exploitation is, is, is equal. We're creating value. We're, we're charging for that value. It's not forcing us to get better. What the largest check does is it says, are you getting better to generate higher revenues? Revenue per customer, that's an element of scale. And yep. by the way, when I say revenue, it's important to say that gross margin, gross profit has a lot to do with this, right? What, and probably more to do with it than revenue. Like how much revenue are you able to run your business on? So if I'm selling a machine and, and I'm, you know, I have a 25% margin, I, sing, I sell you a million dollar machine, I have to pay the vendor $750,000. That was 200, yep. I have $250,000. Right. To run my business on. Yeah. Right. Yep. I want to see that number come up because that means my people, which tends to be your highest cost. Mm -hmm. means, I hate the word efficient. We're generating greater value from our employees. Our, every time like we're moving into higher gears, we're generating more velocity for effort, more juice for the squeeze um, and revenue per employee. And by the way, yep. revenue for employee, there are times where and the, the last thing is we have ranges. If our revenue per employee gets too high, what, what that tells us is we're probably overworking it. We're probably running our machines at more than 100% capacity, and that's going to become a barrier to growth. So, so understanding where we are and what's happening, that's how you build a model to turn growth into manageable, predictable and higher fat. Strong forecasting. This is the takeaway. Because mm -hmm. everyone talks about forecasting. Well, yeah. Strong, for, strong forecasting is the byproduct of good process. And I think we've talked about that before and totally agree with that. Everybody, everybody wants to go to forecasting first and, and don't realize that the process is what drives good, good forecasting. Um, cool. I got a couple of takeaways. So I, I really liked what you said about understand where the weakness is in the data. I think we're always looking for the answers in the data and, and not looking for where, where are our blind spots, where are the holes, where are our weaknesses. Um, understanding the data model. And then um, I liked the idea around building that non-correlating analysis. It's almost counterintuitive I see to what I see people frequently want to do. They want everything to correlate and connect to each other and having kind of that broader picture is going to, is going to eliminate those, those blind spots. So I thought, I thought those were the key takeaways. You know what I say, Jess? What do you say, Doug? Just say no to shitty RevOps. Till next time. And that's a wrap on this episode of The RevOps Show. It's extremely important to figure out the job to be done and 
why you're looking at the metrics you want to look at before diving deep into the depths of gathering those metrics and utilizing them. There's always a purpose to the metrics, or I should say, there should always be a purpose to the metrics that you are looking at and using. I also personally learned the new term of largest check, C-H-E-Q-U-E, not check as in C-H-E-C-K, which is pretty cool. Um, We should always be learning something new every day, right? Anyways, if you enjoyed this episode and want to keep up with us as new episodes come out, make sure to go subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We would also appreciate it if you rated the podcast. Let us know whether or not you're liking the episodes. If you have any questions you would like to ask Doug or Jess about bad metrics, email me at hannahliftenablement.com or hit us up on x at demand creator or LinkedIn at lift enablement. And until next time, just say no to shitty rev ops.